how humans and humans as people, humans as bodies are used as extractive forms, not so differently than we might think of the way that the earth has been dissected and gleaned from to give us all the things like the lights that are keeping this on and the lights that are running my computer as I talk to you. This is Overexposed, a series of conversations about pollution and its effects on everything living and non-living. In every episode of this collaboration between Sonic Acts and Yaya Yan Nene, we ask one of the participants of the Sonic Acts residency program to bring an artifact that has moved their work in a lasting way. This is Andrea González, and in this episode we will talk with Mariam Monalisa Garabi about extraction, exhaustion, cover faces, transparency, oil and data. Hi, Mona Lisa. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you. I think it would be great to start this conversation with the artifact that you wrote. So maybe you can introduce it a little bit. Yes, I was happy that you all asked for that. I, I, I think it's always nice to have an object of analysis. In this case, an image or a still frame. It's from Luis Buñuel's 1950 film, Los Olvidados. And the film is is something that I was introduced to in college, but maybe the significance of this still frame only continues to grow for me. It's one of the few images that are not my own that are pinned up in my studio. And it consists of a blind man staring at a chicken. Basically in this film, uh, this blind man is beaten up by these street urchins and kind of like left for dead. And out of nowhere, as he's gathering himself, his face is bloodied in the middle of the street. Uh, as he's lifting up his head from the asphalt, he be he comes face to face with a chicken. This was introduced to me as an instance of surrealism because the essence of surrealism is that two things that are not meant to be encountering each other, encounter each other and create this surrealist moment. And I think for me, it's, it's further than that and um, has given me a lot to think about um, in terms of what I produce. And that is the limits of knowledge I mean, the conceit is that the man cannot, and I'm putting scare quotes here, he cannot see, he can't visualize the chicken, but typically we don't believe that animals cogitate the same way that we do. So he might be looking at the blind man, but that doesn't mean that he, that the chicken is really registering the, the man. And so to me, it went beyond this, you know, surrealist encounter Or maybe even that is, you know, the, the, the essence of surrealism that always appealed to me about Buñuel, but that it really points to, at least in a visual way, it's one of those few visual examples I have about what it's like to reach the asymptotic limit 
of knowledge. And that's something that I think about all the time. That's a driving force for me. It doesn't really matter what media or medium I'm working in. Um, I'm thinking about the limits of visuality and thinking about forms of human knowledge or human created synthetic forms of knowledge that uh, are always encountering maybe different kind of epistemologies, whether that's religion, whether that's, you know, some kind of cosmology, but other things for which we have no explanation versus all of the things we do. Uh, and especially in the water that I'm working in, which is the, the encounter of the internet and the physical material, you know, non-virtual life, I think it always points me back to this, that we live in the time of in the infinitude of data, but what does that really look like when we talk about knowledge and knowledge formation? I was also very interested in your talk in Sonic Arts a few years ago. It was very interesting, this idea of the app human, also in terms of recognition and how it was connected with horror, with the notion of horror, also in terms of knowledge and how this meaning of the covered face was leaked into French society through this, through this movie. And then, I don't know, it was a pretty beautiful collection of thoughts and... Um, I don't know if you could expand a little bit more about that. So I was interested in, you know, again, that encounter, the encounter of faces and particularly in Western societies, but one could argue, you know, much of the Middle East is Western in many ways. Uh, what does it mean to have terror of the covered face? It's what Deleuze called uh, the terror of repetition because the covered face can't be represented. And I was looking at different forms of law and social norm that didn't allow for the covered face in, you know, day-to-day -day society. And, and that, by the way, has only uh, in some ways worsened since that uh, talk and the collection of writing I did around it. Uh, you know, now young young women in France, for example, can't wear hijab at all. It's it's beyond the face. But but I was looking at things even, you know, looking at American US law, New York law and specifically where groups of three or more could cannot cover their faces in New York State due to laws going back to Native Americans confronting tenant farmers in skin masks and Uh, you know, these laws have been upheld by, you know, form, uh, current Justice Sotomayor, among others. Uh, of course, we're living in a coronavirus moment. So uh, that's, a, I'll, I'll just like pause the current moment and, and our current debacle of covered faces. But specifically, I was really interested in this concept of the ab human from a book by Kelly Hurley. Uh, I just happened to, I'm not a Gothic scholar. I, I don't, I didn't have a lot of knowledge about this, but I became very, very interested in how this notion of something that is human-like but not fully seen and perceived to be human and therefore disposable would apply to such things as, for example, the 2014 killing of Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson, Missouri, 
uh, I did a close reading of the grand jury testimony of Darren Wilson, who assassinated or who killed Michael Brown. And repeatedly in that testimony, because Michael Brown isn't here to speak for himself, but repeatedly Wilson calls attention to Brown's face and that it looked like a demon. Uh, he said that multiple times. And, and from that, that's how I went to demonology and Kelly Hurley's studies of the Gothic body. And I also became very interested, you know, these are like a diffuse set of ideas that I'm, I'm binding together. But I, I also got really interested in this figure called Belfegor in the French imagination. Uh, Belfegor has, has a, a history you know, in demonology far beyond that. But in the 1960s, there was a very influential TV show uh, on Belfegor, this demon that haunts the Louvre Museum. Personne. You know, we have to think about how many people watch this because now everybody just watches different programming. Uh, but in the, at the time, there were like maybe a couple things to watch on television. And I think something like one or two out of every four French, French people in the 60s watched this television drama. And Belfegor in this drama is, it's not always clear if it's a he or a she, although I think that the, the demon does become gendered. It's, it's referred to as it, he, she, if I'm not, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the, in the film, in the, in the television series. And it's like a detective whodunit. And these small, small, but alarming instances of violence are happening. And finally the detective and, you know, his coterie of helpers find out that it in fact is this demon figure who haunts the Louvre Museum. And later, you know, in the course of the 90s, the 2000s, where this debate, uh, well, I, I'm putting debate in, in quotation marks around uh, laicite and the, the place of covered faces in French society, particularly in the form of burqas uh, and niqabs, becomes a lightning rod. And then you see the Belfegor is an insult that is, that is laying on. Muslim women who choose this particular form of covering. So they're, they're called like Belfegor, Belfegor in the street. And it's a pejorative. So, so that got me really thinking about, you know, this Deleuzean notion of terror. And I don't even necessarily think Deleuze had this set of ideas that I'm bringing together in mind. I think he was, he was very perceptive, um, in, in actually Deleuze and Guattari, very perceptive in thinking about the place of the non-representable as something that terrifies the Western imagination because 
part of the Western part of the Western terrain of knowledge is to make things visible, is to make things open to reading, you know, and I'm also thinking about, um, for some reason, these theorist names are coming to mind right now, just to give a little bit more grounding. But Baudrillard starts his book, Simulacra and Simulation, much the same way. That book, by the way, was really considered like the book that predicted 9-11, because he has certain passages about mushroom billowing clouds that are cinematic and that after 9-11, people referred back to as somehow having predicted it. But anyway, that book begins with this un- uncovering of the statue of Ramses II by the French. So Ramses II is sent from the Egyptian Museum to France as part of some kind of museum mission. And the first thing that the French do when they receive this, when they receive the mummy is to lay it open, is to actually uncover it and unseal it. So I I guess I bring these ideas together in the sense that maybe they don't necessarily belong together, but I see a very interesting continuum where if the regime is to lay bare, to make visible and to uncover and reveal, to make less opaque, uh, to make less repetitious and more representational, then it stands, I argue, that regimes uh, that that other that other any kind of blockage to that vision is seen as a threat there's a kind of very interesting triangle between this idea of opacity that you're talking about and the image that we were talking about before between the chicken and the men and like this idea like the the vision there's some kind kind of uncanniness there also yeah just to really quickly tell you what that comes from also i was really interested in the the actual film of Los Olvidados. I'm not necessarily a film purist in that way, although, you know, it's always nice to see things in 35 or 16, but I have to give some credit to um, the film archivist at Harvard for allowing me to take frames from that film, which they have a couple of copies of, but to borrow frames and stills of that actual image and you know, make copies of it for my studio because I kind of have it up always. 
you have actual stills from the original film in your studio? Well, I wish. I have high-res printing prints of the, the original film. So, you know, you can't like, they, they, they won't copy the film for me, but I have a high res, uh, the photographs don't come from online or screen grabs or things like that. They actually come from uh, a high resolution version of the celluloid. Oh, wow. And why, why is it important for you like to have this? Uh, I mean, Los Olvidados isn't the most difficult film to find. You know, Buñuel is an auteur. He's, I'm sure it's somewhere in the Criterion collection, but At the time, I thought that I was going to somehow, I was in art school at the time, and uh, I wrote a, a thesis in art school called Knowers of the Scene, of, Knowers of the Unseen and the Seen, which is an attribute of God uh, given in the Quran exactly 10 times. So God is called the knower of the unseen and the seen. And I was using that as a guiding framework to looking at faces that are covered, looking at each other, um, to looking at any kind of encounter between these different regimes of visibility or opacity. And I, I wanted, at the time, I actually had in mind to do something with the frames of the Buñuel, so I really needed them to be pristine. And the copies that we found uh, were not very pristine, like I was viewing them on a steam back They were, you know, however you expect a film from 1950 to look like after dozens of viewings. But it was, you know, I have to say that there is some kind of aura to being able to see it and handle it in its original form. I'm not necessarily a purist, as I said, about those things, but I just asked them, you know, I need the highest resolution possible if I end up doing something with these still frames of the chicken and the blind man. And uh, luckily they obliged. I didn't end up, you know, uh, using them in my own work in any way. But currently the only images in my studio that are not mine are um, a portrait of Pasolini, uh, several frames from Los Olvidados, and old animations of oil, gas, and petroleum from Arabic school texts. <laughs> those are those are the those are the things that hang up in my studio. So when you asked, I thought I think the Buñuel image offers a lot because it, as you said, it's uncanny. But in I like to think of it as um, a kind of everyday surrealism, you know, everyday, not even absurd, but some kind of everyday uncanny where things that don't necessarily belong in conversation are necessarily in conversation. I feel that there's, from the little I know your work, there's some, some kind of interest in this uncanny moment. Like, for example, in this project, Secret Catalan Poem, there's also like this notion of the encounter. Now you encounter this bunker that is in the, on the hill of Barcelona, and then you develop this whole project about bringing secrets from there to New York. And for me, there's also like, a, I don't know, like a very beautiful process of first an encounter with something that is not quite understandable to some extent, like, or that is ungraspable or like, it's kind of, yeah, as you describe this image from Los Olvidados, it's something that is difficult to quite grasp. And then you establish a process. In this case, it's not exactly that you wrote the text, but it's a kind of co-author text. But there, you establish a process to bring it somewhere or like 
I don't know if this is uh, something that is important for your work in general or it's, uh, or maybe you can develop a little bit more about this project. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that geographic estrangement and geographic proximity are quite important to me. Um, I know that, you know, the very, the very famous and almost mundane definition of translation is, you know, the placement of one thing across to another thing that, that trans as being across. And I, I like to maybe think of it a step further and actually think about the physical and material movement of things across geographic boundaries. But in this case, it was a, it was a, a set of conditions that led to, I mean, sometimes I wish I can recreate this all the time, but it was a set of conditions that led to secret Catalan poem that um, really pleased me, which are that I was in the middle of a residency in the United Kingdom um, at a place called Weising. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty spectacular place. It's just quite lonely and it's in the middle of nowhere. Sometimes you describe it as like a spaceship in the middle of you know, the country wilderness of Britain. And I was there for several months and we, you know, Europe, Europeans have longer vacations or they have like a winter break that's pretty sizable. And I thought, well, I don't know that I can take another minute, you know, in this kind of solitude. I think I'll go to Barcelona and, and hunker down and stay for a month or two. And I went there not with any preset notion of what was going to happen. Uh, I just knew that uh, my birthday was going to happen. So I was like, I'll just be there with, by myself on my birthday and I'll make something, you know, I'll make something while I'm there. And pretty much as soon as I made that decision and bought my flights, um, a couple of commissions came through. One was from Belladonna to write about something. They were like, can you produce a publication? By the way, you have about a month to do it. And I said, sure, I'll think of something. And then the other was Pioneer Works. And that was for an, a performance in New York. And they led to Alphabet of an Unknown City and Secret Catalan Poem. So this is what I would say to anyone who like thinks that you're out of ideas or you're stressed or lazy or procrastinating, like none of those things are true. You just sort of have to put your put yourself in a in a in a in a favorable position. But once in Barcelona, I found close to where I was staying the bunkers del Carmel, which were an anti-fascist site to resist, you know, missiles during the war. And they had now been turned into something of a tourist site and a tourist attraction. And they're not in the center. You have to sort of go to the northeast of Barcelona. They're not necessarily that um, straightforward to get to. But I was living right next to them by pure coincidence. And, you know, there wasn't any transaction really. Like, I, I was really interested in what it was like to just move through that city as someone who, you know, we have a few friends there in common I know, I know some people, I know some institutions, but I was pretty much just by myself. And I wondered what it would be like to uh, think about, you know, these encounters with the geography and with the urban, with the urban core of Barcelona in, in my particular body, in my particular person. And everything was really transactable, you know, store, like the old, I found two places where human encounter was not based on capitalistic transaction. One was the library, 
Spain has excellent library systems. I wish that the rest of, I wish that other countries modeled themselves after Spain because they really are community hubs. I mean, they're packed. And the other is, was the Bunkers del Carmel, which was just a way to kind of see a 360 degree view of the city. And yeah, I came up with this performance for Secret Catalan Poem. I bought, I call it my most expensive poem, you know, to date because I paid $3 per, three euro per rose and I bought roses. And I, for my birthday, I climbed, you know, the bunker, the, the bunkers and started this process of, uh, I guess, gifting a rose for every secret, anonymous or pseudonymous secret. And these strangers, and of course, we're in Europe, so many languages spoken, they could choose the language they wanted to write in, would offer. And I had a pre-form, you know, printed already, like, what is your name? What is your age? And then what is your secret that you've never divulged before? And so this process became uh, a transference. Uh, they would get a rose. It was actually kind of scary to do. Um, for reasons I can get into if, if it's interesting, but it was a bit scary to kind of accost people or sometimes people think that you're about to sell them a rose, right? So there's like this recoiling and it took a lot, it, it took like kind of a lot of guts to do, um, which I didn't account for, but um, I, I had my secrets, I translated them. I was also thinking about the Latin for divulge, which is divulgare, and the, the idea is that you are divulging or disseminating a kind of popular, popular idea. So there's a kind in, in Latin etymology, there's a, an affect of the popular sentiment with that idea of divulging. Whereas typically we think of divulging a secret, like it's private. And so it was writing that line of private and public and what does it mean to have people confess to you, but that that confession is going to be publicized somehow or that I'm confessing for someone else and and by the way the, the, they knew that this, these were going to be translated and and performed so back in New York when I returned to the U.S. I had other strangers so people who came to the Pioneer Works performance uh, they would look under their seat and they would pull out this piece of paper and they could, you know, we, we brought a microphone. And so other strangers would divulge the secrets of these, of these strangers in Barcelona. And so it was, it was also this, not necessarily this encounter, but almost, you know, those like tin, tin telephone cans. It was like a tin telephone can between these two cities as well. And also, I think a very different a very different affect of a secret when it's read in public in that way. And, and I obviously, you know, later on, I drew some connections to the, the history of fascism in Spain and what it was like to have decades upon decades of repression of the private and public secret. And to really, you know, going back to Buñuel, whether it's, I, I don't know if it's Catholicism so much, but where there's so many forms of, repressive tactics and strategies on the body and the mind what happens when you can sort of find an out or find a hack and you know tin tin can the secrets elsewhere and put them elsewhere and then the other part of that project turned out to be alphabet of an unknown city i have a i have a soft spot in my heart for dictionaries and 
um, the form of the abecedaire or the self-made dictionary. And I did one for, you know, this, this month and a half or almost, yeah, a month or so in the city where I was thinking about the Catalan struggle because, you know, the, 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 the movement for the, the, the Catalan uh, presidential election and the repression of that election was happening as I was in the city. So it was on fire. Barcelona was, you know, as, as it is several times a year anyway, absolutely on fire. And I was thinking about that and um, former Catalan fighters who had been killed and things like that. I was thinking about my body as a female or woman woman body in the space because I almost got robbed there. Um, so the 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 chap the the book begins with uh, you know an account of my attempted robbery where someone as soon as I came to Barcelona this man stuck his hand in my purse and pulled out my wallet and I like caught the wallet mid air. It was just a very very strange experience and so yeah I was just really moving through the city and rather than necessarily coming to the abecedaire or the alphabet of Barcelona through second hand, I was thinking about that primary experience, that primary body in the air kind of uh, experience of synthesizing my experience, I should say. And then some of the research that also went into it, such as learning about the Catalan separatists, such as, um, you know, learning about some of the more, I guess, minute details of, of that city, um, but always in some kind of encounter or engagement with my own life. So it ended up reproducing uh, more, if not double more than my actual art residency back in the UK. It just sort of happened that I was primed and primed myself for this, for this uh, to happen. Yeah, super quick note uh, regarding what you said about uh, the effect of the Spanish dictatorship. I think this is a topic that is literally super relevant right now uh, in terms also of uh, the idea of visibility and vision and uh, counting somehow. I recently attended a, com a conference by a Spanish researcher called Marta Chavez and it was super interesting how she was trying to bring into the Spanish territory, this idea of hauntology that has been written for basically the UK context in terms of what it means to reinterpret this in the present moment of Spain, where, you know, well, as you described, it, we actually have, we are basically haunted by the consequences of this yeah, impossibility to make evident violence or terror or yeah, repression. I think it was super interesting because uh, she was kind of making parallels also between Spanish terror or like examples of terror and actual events in places that were were not possible to like this idea of a secret also like things that were not possible to be said they were said through these kind of stories of ghosts or paranormal situations and uh, it was quite quite impressive.
the little I know about the, the work that you're doing in Sonicats about relating data and oil uh, brings me to this notion of extraction. For me, this, this performance, uh, Secret Poem, it is actually kind of embodying that in some way of this kind of idea of data leaking and what, what it means, like what this extraction process means somehow like brought to a very personal personal scale and uh, yeah I wonder how this connect with with these two two words that you were putting together the idea that d- data is a new oil and uh, wh- where are kind of the threads that you're following to to explore that yeah when you were talking about Spain I thought about Iran as well and how there's a kind of hauntology or the inexplicable explained through the paranormal. And um, so, yeah, I I thought of that cultural kind of framing too. In terms of what I'm working on right now, um, you know, which uh, I'm lucky to have Sonic Acts on as a a collaborative partner and a, I guess, a research sponsor for this work. Um, So a couple of things in just before the pandemic, actually, I formed what I call a one-woman collective called the Oil Research Group, or ORG. It kind of started in a little bit in a joking way because I just really wanted to read books about petroleum and had gathered a few people to read them with me. But uh, this is 2019, so we were all working four jobs, you know. I know everyone's quitting their jobs now, but um, at the time, uh, we everybody was uh, just manic And nobody had the time to kind of stop the clock and read about oil with me. So I thought, you know what, Uh, I'm going to go ahead and just create a one woman collective and give it a name. And it's become more than a joke now, because going back to what we were talking about in terms of the limits of knowledge, uh, the idea of a research group uh, or the idea of some kind of organizational framing but really only one person at the center of it or one, one main uh, litigant is interesting because it all, now that I'm in it, it feels like the work is never done. Like the, the I'll never reach the end of it, the asymptote of it. But it really started for me um, in terms of thinking about oil and neocolonialism in Iran Something that had just has always just been in the back of my mind, but never at the forefront of conversations, even at the level of family. Um, I was born in Iran, in Tehran, but it was during the course of caring about oil and thinking about oil and reading books about oil and starting to write and take notes where I learned that my own family, for example, had ties to Abadan, where oil was first discovered in 1907. And by the 1930s or maybe, you know, early 40s that members of my family, my, my, you know, great grandfather, for example, was a Hakim in the home of, um, some of the British oil industrialists. So this really was, this had never happened in quite the same way when I've taken on kind of other projects and created other, um, artistic forms, but this became quite personal in that way. And, and by the way, we'd never have known about that had I not asked about it. But coming, doing a macro, I started thinking about extractive economies, which is a little bit more helpful for me to think about in, instead of, say, if I just said, I really care about capitalism and I want to study capitalism, something about thinking of 
these forms as extractions um, helped a little bit. And I can say more about that. But basically between oil research group and reading about the beginnings of oil in Iran, um, two things happened. One, I learned about a man named William Darcy Knox, who was a British, I mean, at the time, a millionaire. Um, you might think of him as one of the most wealthy people, certainly in Britain at the time. Um, but he was a speculator and had sent a team to Iran to look for oil. He had a hunch that there was oil to be found. And they worked for seven years to no avail. He spent his own money. And sometime around 1907, be, be, beneath the Masjid al-Suleyman in, uh, in Abadan, oil was struck. And he made a deal with the Shah of the Shah of the time um, for a kind of, and I'm actually very keen on finding some of those documents if the internet obliges me. Uh, they came up with a kind of contract for future speculation where here's, here's how much William Knox Darcy can keep. Here's how much he's going to maybe owe the, the local landowner or the state. But it was very, very, very little. In other words, he was essentially allowed to profit as much as he wanted. And that early discovery lays the path for the further extraction and exploitative economy between um, Britain and the Anglo-British Oil Company and Iran, and then later the Americans as well. And then maybe people will be more familiar with the recent history, such as, you know, the assassination of the first person to try to nationalize oil in Asia, um, Prime Minister Mossadegh. So I knew about the later stuff. I knew about the 50s, but I didn't know about the still the Qajar era 1907. So that was really I was really keen on framing it in terms of a neo-colonial project. And I'm not even certain that I want to even use that term. I know a lot of, for a lot of people from Iran, the idea that we were ever colonized is very rejected because, you know, there's a lot of pride that we were not actually ever colonized, but I want to maybe instead shift the frame to extractive economies and then the second, you know, guiding post for me when ORG first came to be was, uh, well, I was teaching uh, media technologies at NYU at the time. So I was teaching the works of people in, you know, the data and information science sphere. So on my own, in my own art practice, I was thinking about oil and petroleum and thinking, breathing, living, that kind of thing. And then by day, I was teaching about data. And I came across, and I want to give credit to James Bridle, um, I came across James Bridle's reference to a British mathematician named Clive Humby, who said data, um, who said that data is the new oil. He's, the, he's, he's credited as being the first to term that. And Humby is a really interesting person. I, if he's listening to this podcast, I'd love to talk to him. He's alive. Um, he is a British mathematician who came up with the first customer loyalty card at Tesco. So wherever you are in the world, at least in the industrialized world, you probably have been faced with getting a loyalty card to your pharmacy, to your grocery store, etc. And Clive Humby, you know, was, was its inventor. And I was recently asked by my interlocutors at Sonic Acts 
Um, what do you, what do you make of this? Like, what do you think he meant by this? And I think what he meant is that, I mean, I think he could have meant many things. That's kind of what I'm trying to uncover, but that you can mine customer data. Uh, so the, the store prints out a coupon. We, we know this, like we give our data over and then the store uses the data and mines it for ways to sell us additional products, but then sometimes spits out a coupon and it keeps us in this loop. So I think one way he meant it is that big oil is coterminous with big data and the same way that so much of our fossil fuel economy and even the stock market, which is largely based on, you know, outsized oil companies are embedded culturally. So too is data and data is that next frontier. I came up with for Sonic Acts, the text that I'm writing currently, its tentative title is Exhaust. And it's, it's a, it's a, a way for me to position oil and data and human extractivism. Uh, and what I mean by that is everything from the demoralization of the end of fossil fuels. A lot of the things that I was watching at the time are clips of oil spills. Um, so this rise in the contamination of the seas, which as of today, I mean, we're talking in July of 2021, but several gas pipelines have burst in the past month. Uh, you know, we had that image of the, the Gulf of Mexico be basically being on fire because it was a gas pipeline and, and gas cannot be put out by water. So we had this, we have this very recent image in our minds of like a mushroom cloud explosion inside the ocean, but everything from that to even the non-desirability for children right now, where, you know, the world's economic powers have seemed to brandished a lot of forward thinking technologies that, you know, serve industrial economies, but have not served millions of people who believe that they can't, either can't have afford or can't have children or there will no, not be water for their children to drink. So a kind of exhaust in that vein. And also, you know, this idea of the tedium vitae or that, again, the, the tedium of the everyday life, the demoralization, the exhaustion, the fatigue of what it is to be to have our um, labor extracted from us via the capitalist machines. And that's sort of how I open, um, that's how I open exhaust that, and I'll read you the very first sentence of it. Our basic premise is that capital is dead labor, vampire-like, living only by sucking living labor. So this idea that the more, the more capital lives, the more it extracts, and it extracts in a particular, it, it extracts in ways that are particular to its needs. So one example that I use is the very first uh, Zen booths by amazon.com. So I don't know if you've seen this, but they look like big porta potties and uh, they, they're a way for Amazon work. The company positions the, the Zen booth as a way for their tired, exhausted workers to recharge by listening to soft music, by going on the computer and finding a meditation app for themselves and by saying, you know, uh, affirmations of positivity. And it's a really perfect example for what I'm talking about, where in the obligatory extractivist economy, capital, labor, and estrangement are inseparable. 
So of course you have a company where, you know, workers are defecating and urinating in bottles and plastic bags. Their bodies are breaking down. Their unions have been violently disrupted. They're unionizing attempts. And instead, they're given these Zen booths to try to calm and quell their senses and their body uh, in this like synth- synthesized space. So that idea of emotional or affective estrangement is never really far beyond the breakdown of the body and is never far beyond this vampire extraction of capital from their body. So Amazon is not an oil company and arguably it's not a data company, but in my estimation, in a way it's both. It's uh, an, an economy based on human extraction toward the furthest asymptotic limit necessitating something like the zen booth uh rather than say you know the old really boring things like rights like a higher minimum wage like the ability to take rest breaks or anything else that we might um think is normal uh in the past 20 30 years in which this has happened so i am talking about oil um, I took a, an oil class in preparation for this work, so um, I won't say the name of the institute where I did it, but it's a, a midstream, upstream, downstream course on oil production, and it was it it really you know blows your hair follicles back. I mean, it was really a lot more than I accounted for. Uh, I also, because it's from the industry and I learned how the oil and gas industry see themselves and importantly, how they see resistors and things like Standing Rock or things like um, oil pipeline uh, detractors are things that the companies really think about and they know about and are strategizing for. Um, so I, I learned a lot and I think my challenge right now is I work through this text is, you know, one form and structure. I care a lot about structure. I mentioned the Abbasader before. I think that the way that you structure a piece of writing is, you know, it's not 50%. It's like everything. It's a hundred percent. So I'm thinking about the form that Exhaust is going to take both as a publication for Sonic Acts and then a book. And then secondly, I'm thinking about the axis of a couple of D's, um, dirt, debt, death, uh, data, and desire, and what it's like to move through these um, intervailing and intersecting concepts, always through the mode of extraction, always through how humans and humans as people, humans as bodies are used as extractive forms, not so differently then we might think of the way that the earth has been dissected and gleaned from to give us all the things like the lights that are keeping this on and the lights that are running my computer as I talk to you. It's a deep dive. Um, sometimes it's it flows well and I feel like it's going well and sometimes it's pretty difficult. And yeah, so currently I'm, I'm trying to make it all work. Some, somehow I had a conversation recently with Uriel from ELI. It's an office of architecture based in Madrid. They are like working a lot about infrastructure and ecology, like how now we are urged to see our cities from the infrastructural point of view. And more than urged, it's like as if 
the infrastructure was just be, like literally revealing against urban planning. Somehow like this idea of like the catastrophes that we are living through, they are just like a way to expose how all these systems that are conforming us, as you were saying, like extractive infrastructure, but then also anything, anything that supports the city, basically, which is the hidden city, are just like going to the surface with this, uh, like the ecological crisis that we are going through. Even, for example, COVID, that like kind of the city is exposed as a biotechnological surface in which we understand it in a quite different way than before. And that is, for me, somehow also connected with this idea of data extraction as something that we cannot quite sense or view or visualize, which is also connected with things that we've been talking through. For me, that that falls under the problematizing of the, of the idea of transparency and what does it mean for us. Uh, for me, like it means something close to this idea of sensing or being able to sense something that is different from the reality that we live within, but I don't know if you have any kind of thesis on why you want the structure of the text to be the first thing. If you want, if you are also like tackling this notion of transparency between you know, within your text. That's a great point. You know, how do you visualize things that are non-seeable? Like, what is what is? I, I always say this. Like, there's the ontic and the ontological. The ontic is the question of what is, like what is data is an ontic question. And the ontological is what is the meaning of? So what is the meaning of data? And I think that what I'm doing is both an ontic question and an ontological one, because, you know, we also, if you think about it, don't really see oil, you know? I mean, that was one of the most fervent questions for me, as simple as it sounds, right? Just coming, like as an artist, like coming to a subject not just as a researcher, but as an artist, you want to think about, well, what does it feel like? What is it, what is it like? What is its texture? Does it have viscosity? Does it have acidity? Um, what would it be like to pour some diesel or gasoline or different forms of petroleum in my studio and, and test them? What does that look like? And I realized that while I could do that, you know, I could go to a hardware store and, and do, a, do tests. I've done things like that with soil for other projects before. Um, that I was actually still like in, in the span of everyday life, oil is always at a remove. It's so important. We hear it constantly on the news. The fossil fuel economy is, is ending, et cetera. Um, we've all, we, we, we're, we're in the summer of a very kind of heated world and a heated debate about whether climate change is debatable and, and yet we don't have very much interaction with petroleum and gas. I mean, you know, unless you think about your, your bills or going to a gas station. And even then, you know, your interaction is a very particular one. And the same kind of strikes me with data. And I've done a project before where the invisibility of data was part of that work, which is bio. I updated the bio line of Twitter for 365 days. That bio line is not retained. There's no metadata of that line. There's no API. And so it was this performance of this thing that you could see every day, but then at the end of the day, a new bio would go up. And then I collected that and it became a composition. It became a book. Mm -hmm. um, but I was also there thinking about, you know, 
the difference between like data, which is the surface of what we see, the visual interface, or even HTML would be data. And then underneath it, what remains of it, what is captured of it, which is the metadata. So for example, the size and file name of your JPEG is the metadata. And so how do you, I think your question points to, you know, not just visibility, but materiality of these things. Um, one, one thing I keep going back to is a short story by Italo Calvino, which I recommend everyone look up and read. It's very short. It's maybe three or four pages and I read it all the time. It's called the petrol pump. And it's, it sort of seems to solve my problem because in it, Calvin, it's, it's a, it's an afternoon in the life of this man looking to fill up his car with gas. And he's going, you know, he's worried that by the time he gets to the gas station, he's going to run out of gas. And then when he finally goes there and pumps gas, he's very methodical and, and thinking very clearly about putting in the lira. There wasn't euro back then. So he's putting in a lira and these pipelines, he, he's imagining, he's experiencing the gas station or the petrol pump, but he's also imagining and foreshadowing all of the things that made that gas possible. So he talks about the emir wearing white in some, you know, Middle Eastern country. He's thinking about the undersea, under, under the water cables and pipelines that are pulling the gas to him in this particular place. So in a way, it's this like, it's not an illustration at all. It's this very human, distilled, synthesized vision of what it is to be at the center of the world and also just be another pixel on a computer screen. Um, it's very, it was very powerful for me. The other, you know, guiding, if, if there are a couple of guiding texts that I've been going back to would be Jonathan Crary's book, 24 seven, which I actually read in, uh, in, in the UK and Barcelona during that period I told you about and, um, have been reading again. And I like to teach that book as well because it makes me think not just of amazon.com and, and, you know, the so-called big platforms or big data companies, but going as far back to um, Arkwright's cotton mills in Britain, for example, which were some of the first factories to use nighttime lighting to make sure that workers could continue to work a minimum of 13 to 14 hours a day. By the way, two thirds of the cotton mill workers of Britain were children, um, thinking of human extract extraction. And then finally, another book that has been um, curious, and I think this actually gets to your question uh, a little bit, some of the points you were raising, is Byung-Chul Han's The Burnout Society. Han is uh, a Korean philosopher uh, who writes in German. And I was really, I, I thought, you know, like Burnout Society is such a, first of all, like such an amazing title for a book. But um, in it, he's thinking about data and it, the affect of data and why is it and this is not my question this is his question so people can again the book is very short Crary's book is short as well they're really worth reading but Han's question is why is it that in the, with the rise of data technology as you know the water and air that we all breathe why is it that we've also seen a magnanimous rise in things like depression, ADHD, um, bipolar disorder? These are things that he names. 
And his conclusion is that we are not suffering an excess of negativity, but we're suffering an excess of positivity, that there's something toxic and contaminated in the way that we are always on, the way that we are always energized and um, somehow infinite. And, uh, you know, I don't pass any moral judgments on that conclusion. I think that the points he raises are probably only a philosopher could raise. I think if you're a historian, you're going to be, you know, laughed out of the room uh, or thrown out. But in terms of this imaginative experience uh, of Calvino's narrator, you know, pumping gas and thinking about the elaborate economy of the money to the gas, to the pipeline, to Qatar, and then back to Italy. And then Jonathan Crary thinking about the last safe haven uh, of the of the last place that capitalism has not yet totally been able to exploit or subsume, which is the air, which is sleep. And then Han's uh, idea of toxic positivity as leading us to excessive energy that we've been so extracted from that we're not just exhausted where uh, we have a surplus. Those are some of the ways that I'm thinking about, you know, the material and immaterial lives of oil and data. When when do you think we will have any outcomes of this residency, uh, the book that you're planning to write? Yeah, we did a we did a roundtable where I got to. This was a real joy for me. I got to bring people uh, in very much in deeply involved, very smart, very sensitive, fearless people in the world of oil and data to a roundtable. It's called Exhaust and it should be, the video should be posted at sonicacts.com. And then the text that I'm writing for them will emerge hopefully in September. And uh, I'm going to be looking for a publisher. So I don't know, maybe one is listening, but um, Exhaust uh, will hopefully become a book. And um, yeah, well, I'm pursuing that until, you know, it's, it's, it feels like something that uh, can, can be never ending, but that's why I was talking about structure that I need to know, you know, what are the framings of it or what kind of, what kind of container, sorry for the pun, um, but what kind of container is necessary for this project so that it actually has a, something of a beginning, beginning, middle and end, not necessarily in that order. Well, thank you very much. I hope to see you on the, on the waves very soon. It's a, it's a, it's been an amazing conversation. Um, Thanks so much, Andrea. I really, really uh, appreciated talking to you and being mm -hmm. able to say some of this stuff out loud. No, it's, it's usually super with nice. me in my studio or with Margarita. <laughs> my face is the real shop front. My shop is the face I front. I'm real when I shop my face.